Welcome back to Afterburner, the Project Boom podcast. I'm Allison Gundrum, a senior at Mount Horeb High School, a systems integration team member, and the producer of Afterburner. On this week's episode, we discuss some major Project Boom updates, go in-depth on design thinking, and hear Craig Domlow, senior system engineer at Blue Origin, tell his story. For all this and more, stay tuned for this week's episode of Afterburner. Welcome back to Afterburner. I'm your host, Shiva Valbanani, a rising senior in aerospace engineering from Purdue University, and with me today is Colin Watson. Colin Watson is our founder and project lead here at Project Boom and will be going into his second year at the University of Oklahoma. And Colin, it looks like you've moved in to back to campus. Yeah, thank you for the introduction, Shiva. And I have. I'm in my uh, apartment on the University of Oklahoma's campus. Super exciting. You ever, if anybody ever sees this video, I'm in all red, my curtains are red, and uh, so, boomer sooner. All right, yeah, I'll be going back to school in another week, so I'm kind of jealous that you're already there now. But before we get into it today, what's new this week in Project Boom, Colin? A lot of stuff. So, um, a couple of really big announcements, actually. So, our propulsion team is going to possibly do a very cool partnership with a very, very cool company um, in the future. I'll just tease that. I'm not going to give any details. Uh, our aerodynamics team has pretty much gone through a complete redesign of the aircraft. Um, they slimmed down our aircraft a lot, added canards, which if you're not familiar, are just little um, actuating control surfaces at the front of an aircraft rather than at the back like they usually are. Um, it looks really cool, um, and that's going to help with a lot of different things. Yeah, it's definitely going to add to the stability and control of our aircraft, and adding that extra weight at the front will m- move our CG uh, or our center of gravity into a, a place that's really going to help uh, us re- our, keep our stability for the aircraft. So we're super excited about that development. Hope We'll see if that pans out. Um, we're iterating and trying different designs all the time, so that's just the next iteration. If you ever want to see what we're talking about, go to theprojectboom.org, and we have an AR model on there that you can manipulate and look at and see all the details of what we've been working on. And then aside from that, Um, Our integration team is still working on takeoff and recovery because it's a huge part of our aircraft. There's a lot of different trade-offs you have to consider. Uh, Like if you add landing gear, it adds weight to your aircraft, which isn't necessarily good. Um, However, if you take the landing gear off, how are you going to land? So then that comes until maybe you put a parachute on it, but a parachute takes up a lot of space. Maybe you fly it into a net, but our stall speed's 80 miles an hour, so we have to hit the net at 80 miles an hour. Right, and this thing's like a needle, right? Yeah, it's a uh, yeah. This thing's super yeah, super fast in its stall speed and takeoff speed. Like it's gonna rotate, which rotating is like when an aircraft um, actually like takes off at uh, is gonna rotate at like eighty miles an hour. So it's almost like a full sized aircraft. That is actually higher than a lot of full sized aircraft. Yeah, and with the landing and takeoff, adding landing gear sounds cool. You know, it sounds like the normal thing to do, but aerody- aerodynamically. It causes a lot more drag, and there's a lot other issues to work out. Exactly. So um, that's the main thing for this week. And then as well, which we haven't talked about, um, is we kind of changed the engineering timeline of the uh, project uh, to ensure our success. Our team came together, our engineering team specifically, and voiced some opinions and worries about our last timeline. And they were 100% correct about it. Uh, so, what was our pre- What was our previous approach, Colin? Yeah, so if you didn't know... Our previous approach was we were going to design, build, and fly a supersonic aircraft that used either rocket integration um, and or an afterburner to push through the sound barrier, and we were going to fly that next summer. So that was going to be the only aircraft we ever build and the only aircraft we ever fly. So um, it was like a one-shot thing. And because of the complications that are with rocket integration and afterburner, the team wanted to build a subsonic aircraft that doesn't have any of the integration issues but still allows us to test our avionics, our takeoff and recovery, our manufacturing, and even some of our aerodynamic features of the aircraft. So the new plan is for the next year, pretty much, we're going to design, build, and fly a high subsonic aircraft that will go into manufacturing in early 2021 and will fly in the summer of 2021. Everything that we learn from that we'll put into a supersonic aircraft that uses... Um, an afterburner or rocket integration 
to fly in late 2021, early 2022. So that gives us a much better chance of success. This is how a lot of different companies do it. One thing we talked about last time with Matt Stott was, let's say we do the original plan and we put all, put all of our eggs in one basket, do a flight and the thing crashes. You know, then it's like, okay, what next? And this two-phase approach allows us to have that iterative um, time to test our different systems and give us the best chance for success. So that is a little bit of why we decided to do that. Yeah, and that two-phase plan, another exciting thing, um, by the time this podcast is posted, our new website will be live. Um, so that's super exciting. And on there, you can see our phased plan timeline if you want to take a look at that and see maybe some more details about it. So um, that's how you think the main update for this week. All right, coming right up, we have a very special guest. So fasten your seatbelts. It's time for liftoff. As a student-led initiative attempting a task that has never been accomplished, it is important that we tell the story of this incredible project from the start. A group of highly motivated kids from all over the world facing more than one barrier. The sound barrier is just the destination. This is the journey. Welcome to Afterburner. All right, guys, today we have Craig Domlo, Senior System Engineer at Blue Origin on the show. Craig has established himself as a leader in the aerospace industry with an undergrad in physics from Baker University and a graduate certificate for innovation and entrepreneurship from Stanford University. Over the past 20 years, Craig has worked on many design teams such as SAE International and has also worked as an engineer at companies like Cessna and BE Aerospace. Craig was also at Zodiac Aerospace, a company leading in aerospace equipment and systems for commercial aircraft and space applications for around 12 to 13 years. At Zodiac, Craig worked with some of the major aerospace companies such as Boeing as the program director for Zodiac Oxygen Systems. In the past few years, Craig has also been working as an innovation coach as a design thinking expert, helping to ignite a culture of innovation across a wide range of industries through his company Soapbox Rocket. There's a lot more that I'm probably forgetting to include in this bio, but to have Craig as an advisor at Project Boom is something we're really excited about. With his experience as an innovation coach, I can't wait to dive deeper into his journey in the professional world and also discuss some of his ideas for Project Boom. Craig, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank, thank you. Uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for letting me help you guys. Um, yeah, no, thank you for helping us. <laughs> everybody gets. Right. So I think one thing Colin and I really wanted to talk about was your story of how you went from uh, your degree in physics to, I guess, working at Blue Origin to where you are right now. Yeah. And actually, it, it's it's funny because I thought about this recently, but the so I'm currently a systems engineer, senior systems engineer with Blue Origin in our engineering center of excellence. And so the way Blue Origin is structured is we have multiple business units, um, such as New Shepard, New Glenn, building projects to launch. And the Engineering Center of Excellence, our role is essentially in a matrix organization to support those programs and to make sure that the best lessons learned are transferred between programs. So there's no reason New Glenn needs to learn the same lessons that New Shepard has already learned. And so our role in that, as a specifically as a systems engineer, is to try and bring that over. And, and going back to where I did my original education in physics and math, for me, for better or for worse, I don't know, but I went into school with the expectation of you go to school and study what you love, not what you want to do in the future. Um, and I, I don't know if that's still the case. And I don't know if that's a, even a recommendation I would give to people, but ultimately what I loved was solving problems. 
breaking them down, understanding, you know, what is it? I mean, even when you look, especially when you look at something as simple as, well, maybe not as simple, but there's a lot of interesting history into determining if light has a limit. And so it becomes, how can you break that problem down into chunks that you can achieve? So exactly like you guys are doing now is, so one of the early experiments, and I can't remember who did it now, if it was Newton or Galileo, um, but one of the early experiments in determining if speed of, if there was a limit to the speed of light was a physicist and his uh, um, apprentice, I guess at that time, but they had, lights, lanterns, and one would stand on one hill and one would stand on another hill some distance away, both of their lanterns on, the first person would cover his lantern, they would cover theirs, and then you would basically time. Well, you're doing this eyeball, which is the human, humans are not great at pretty much anything. Um, <laughs> Right? We suck at hearing, we suck at seeing, we suck at determining time. But so they determined that speed of light was instantaneous because when they covered, the other person covered at exactly the same time. Now, of course, we know when you break that down, that didn't happen. And so the, the experiment I remember doing was you take a laser and you shoot it down a hallway, you hit a mirror and you come back and you have a laser and a sensor and you're just... You, you measure that distance and then you take a, a disc and you spin the disc at a certain rate until you start seeing the flashes and then you compare at what speed your uh, disc was flashing. So you, what you need to do is you need the light to go down the hall, hit the mirror. So it goes, it goes through slot number one, hits the mirror, comes back. And so then you figure out what that speed difference, you know, the rotation rate and the distance and then you can calculate the speed of light, right? And, and so it's, it's one of those, you break the problem down into things you can actually do. Yep. Um, and, and understanding that as we change our equipment, we're going to get better and better and better. So, you know, for instance, you guys, the first stage you're doing is uh, almost the speed of sound. Right. right. And you're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn a lot because especially that transitional phase from, uh, you know, subliminal um, or um, subsonic speed uh, to supersonic speed is, is a very hairy area for control surfaces. Right, because you're facing aerodynamic flutter. You're, you're facing a lot of different forces that makes the whole thing harder to control, especially going from subsonic to supersonic that's the region where you're like all right there's a probably yeah the transonic region and there's probably gonna be a point in time where where you just don't even know the condition of your aircraft yeah exactly yeah and so and, and so back to that original question of physics to to engineering um that's really how that came about for me was uh finished school finished undergrad and didn't feel like doing any more school, really, more to the point. Just like, okay, I got to go out and do something now. And uh, ended up at Cessna Aircraft um, doing flight test uh, for Cessna, doing mechanical design engineering for flight test. Uh, it's, it's easy to teach a physicist how to use CAD. Um, so that was that transition. Uh, did a number of interesting projects with Cessna, um, where my physics background really came into, again, it's all for me. And, and today, even today with systems engineering, it's about breaking it down into as many small parts as you can manage. And so one of, one of the tasks when you certify an aircraft is you have to prove to the FAA or any regulatory body that you know 100% what your plane's doing. And so we had to monitor the control surface on the tail so that when they, when the pilots took the yoke, if they turned the yoke at 30 degrees, that the control surface turned 30 degrees. Is this like a fly by wire system? No, it, uh, this was, this was purely mechanical uh, still, but you know, how do you prove that when you're actually going to test it? And so you can't, you can't have direct measurement 
because it's a moving surface in flight. Um, so that that's the hard part is, and it's it's also related to the forces. We were also measuring forces, but so what we did was we put a curved piece of metal on one surface and a magnetic sensor on the other surface separated. And so as the tail would turn, this control surface would turn, that distance would grow up and down. And then we'd use the, the voltage change in the magnetic sensor to know how far that surface had changed. Um, so then I was, I was there for a while, uh, eventually ended up at BE Aerospace designing oxygen systems. Uh, first big project I worked on was the 787. Um, I, I was brought in specifically to lead the portable oxygen, completely new technology. So traditionally, they're pretty dumb systems. You turn it on, it flows a set amount of oxygen. That's it. The 787 made a big jump in technology where they went electromechanical. And so when you breathe, at best, at best, only half of your breath cycle needs oxygen when you inhale. Realistically, when you start looking at the physiology of that, it's only about the first third. And so the 787, both, so when you inhale, it gives you a little bolus of oxygen and then stops flowing to conserve oxygen. So they can carry less oxygen, reduce weight, uh, give it, it's more efficient, you know, just the general things that aerospace likes, less weight, less cost, uh, more efficiency more complex, but you, you know, you manage that in different ways. Uh, worked there for a while and then ended up at Zodiac Aerospace doing the same thing. Um, not quite the same thing, still working on oxygen systems. That moved me to uh, Seattle, um, Boeing being one of their big customers, Boeing being one of the big customers for everybody in the commercial aeros aerospace <laughs> realm. Right, because everything these days is so vertically integrated. Yes. And, and to that point, BE Aerospace doesn't exist anymore. They got bought by Rockwell, who got bought by uh, UTC. So now it's Collins Aerospace, uh, where I worked is now. Who got absorbed by Raytheon, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and Zodiac got bought by Saffron. So Zodiac doesn't exist anymore. Uh, they're now owned by Saffron. And it's that, part of it is it's, it's that own more not just and it's not just a greed aspect of it but it, there's an efficiency of the design if you know you guys you're working on a project and everybody's talking i hope i hope everybody's talking all the subgroups are talking yep. and so you can balance design especially from a systems aspect you can say okay you know, the canards give us this advantage so we can change something somewhere else. Or to your point, adding landing gear because landing traditionally is a known commodity and, and easier to manage than trying to catch an airplane at 80 miles an hour without damaging it. Yeah. And so you start doing these trade-offs. But in commercial aerospace 30, 40 years ago, everything was built by somebody else. And so you built your little part. And so Boeing and Airbus are looking at this and saying, well, if Saffron comes to us and Saffron says, look, we have a completely integrated system. So you only buy one package from us. That makes it easier for you to check it. And B, it makes it easier for us to integrate parts in and reduce your costs, reduce your weights. And so that it's a kind of a natural um, evolution, I guess I would, I would call it for lack of a better term. Yeah. Yeah. So a couple of comments on all of that. That was a lot. Yeah. Uh, uh, breaking it down. Like you talked about, that's funny because I didn't even, there's another part where we've broken it down even more. I didn't even talk about is we're going to be building foam models of our aircraft um, to simplify it even more. Uh, Cause that allows us to mainly test our avionics system is we need a test bed to put our avionics system on some kind of aircraft. So we were gonna just use like, and we still might, just an off the shelf electric foam aircraft, integrate our own avionics system into it and just try to fly it, right? Um, we can do that, but then we're like, well, we kind of need to build the airframe as well, just to kind of see what it looks like, as well as try to fly it at any speed and just see what happens because it just flips over and is completely unstable. And then she's like, oh, well. 
Um, obviously, we have to parameterize the whole test in the right way to make sure we actually get accurate data. But um, yeah, so that's a whole another example of breaking down the problem even more, taking complexity of it. By that, mainly, is we're taking away a lot of the speed because our foam aircraft will fly at a much lower speed um, than even our subsonic aircraft. So, Right, and for those of you listening, if you're not in aerospace, there's a, something we call the Reynolds number, which essentially allows us to non-dimensionalize or remove any sort of dimensions um, whether uh, in our problem so that we can compare two different conditions of flight. So one problem that we're kind of facing with the foam model is when we test the foam model, and let's say it's not the same size as our aircraft, that Reynolds number or that dimensionless number that allows us to understand how uh, and that helps us uh, figure out how our plane flies through certain velocities or different flow conditions like density or pressure, um, we really need to think about the with the foam model is what information can we take out from that test. I think that I think I said it a little more confusing than it needs to be said, but hopefully that got the message across. And and in physics we always called that a DOE. It was design of experiment. So we know we know there's, you know, you think about it, there's 20 different aspects to that airplane. And so in this design, we're going to control for 16 of them. And 14 are the parameters that are going to be able to, we'll be able to change and determine what effect they have. Um, very, very similar to basically you use a Reynolds number to kind of level set and you say, okay, we're not going to measure this part of the airplane. We're going to measure a different part of it. Um, but yeah, so I think that's that's what from from a purely physics side, that's what we would call it as a design of experiment. Right. And I think, Craig, what you said and speaking to your experience is really, really interesting. So I want to take a step back. And so you're so I guess in in your view, you did this physics degree and um, because you're passionate about it. And it sounds to me that you're somebody who likes to dive into a problem and figure out, you know, what are the steps I need to take to figure this thing out? Like a Rubik's cube. Do I need to, you know, match the centers first or the edges? And then from there you end up solving the entire thing. Yes. Yeah. And that's exactly it. And it's, I kind of, and especially when, when, when we, you know, if you want to talk about uh, right before blue, I was doing independent consulting innovation consulting and it was a lot of reverse road mapping. So where do you want to get, right? So you guys want to build a supersonic aircraft or, or supersonic RC aircraft. And then going backwards to how do you get there? What, what are the steps you need? You know, you need a, you need one, uh, right? For it to be a plane, <laughs> um, you, need a, you need a leading edge that can go supersonic because, um, you know, I'm sure you guys know, and a lot of, hopefully everybody listening, not all services, leading edges can go supersonic. You need a pretty well swept wing set um, to, to break that sound barrier. And so then, okay, so what do we need to do? And then there's a lot of discovering what are those problems. And, and I think the phased approach will help you solve those problems without risking everything like you, you talked about. Because uh, if you lose it all, then you may not get any valid data. And, and I think when you look at commercial airspace, a, a recent example of that was Virgin Orbit, who, if, you, if you've seen Virgin Orbit, their idea, they're taking a Boeing 747 and strapping a rocket to the bottom of it, fly up to a certain altitude, you drop the missile or drop the rocket, and it, it then launches to space. So you've you're removing that. There's less inertia for a rocket to break. It's already at altitude. There's a lot of reasons that are doing that. It's currently but, all in theory right now as well. Well, yeah. Well, you, no, you technically well, get less delta V, right, for the rocket. Yeah. But come on, the ignition process at that altitude and that speed? It adds different issues, yeah. But it's, it's all the cost-benefit analysis. It's like, okay, I, I get rid of this, but it's going to add this, but which one overall is the better solution? Which Yeah, exactly. And, and they did do their first quote unquote launch. Um, 
Some people said it's failed. They, they said it was a success because they weren't trying to get to space. They were trying to test their drop and ignition system, which worked. Yep. They then had to uh, detonate the, the rocket uh, prematurely because of, I think it was a fuel system leak. I don't remember exactly what, but it was a phased approach. And what they did, and I think for you guys to think about, is they said, these are the three things or two things we want to test. But I guess it was three, right? Can we get the rocket to altitude? Can we drop it uh, fully loaded with fuel? And can we ignite it? The getting to space was a, another achievement they, were, they had on that mission, but it wasn't part of the mission goal. They achieved their three mission goals. They failed to meet the, the next step. But, you know, it's always something to think about is especially when you look at you're going to White Sands, you're going to have a set amount of time to do flights. If, if you have, you know, for example, if you guys have three days on White Sands to fly and on day one, you achieve the record for fastest RC airplane, then have a couple other tests, you know, in your back pocket that you can pull out and say, okay, let's try this, let's try this, let's try this, because what else can we do? You know, um, if you put it into a nosedive, can you break the sound barrier that way because you get an extra boost from gravity? Yeah, uh, and then it's probably gonna go nosedive straight into the ground at that point. Yeah, you might not have enough altitude to do it. Uh, but yeah. there's, there's always those options. Uh, I know one thing we did talk about was, yeah, like, uh, what if we need to go for a second run? Um, do we just try to get a large angle attack and then kind of nosedive it to get enough speed to, to make that second run? So yeah. we, these were things we actually talked about. Yeah. yeah. We, we, it's always start with the safest option. And then if that works, just like get riskier and riskier. And then until it fails, I guess, pretty much. Because all right, it's not going to do any good saying on a shelf. So I might as well push it to its limits. <laughs> right. And, and know what the limits are. Exactly. Uh, that's, that's something incredibly difficult with space and aerospace is to know where your limits are. Uh, yeah. Because, again, it's, a, it's, it's an expensive proposition to push it all the way. Yeah, and that's something, especially with this first aircraft having two phase, um, this isn't something we've finalized or anything, but um, it'll probably make a lot of sense to push the aircraft to failure at the end of our testing if we find a system that's like, okay, like what is the actual maximum that this can do, right? If we go into a dive, can we pull up? Okay, that's a big question we have. Um, so maybe we don't come home with our first aircraft because after we fly and we've got all the information we need out of it, like, like I said, it doesn't do much to do it on a shelf. If we can do everything safely, um, then pushing the aircraft to its complete limits so that we learn everything we can for our second aircraft is probably the most important thing to do but we'll see. It's going to be really hard to do something that's purposely going to harm our aircraft though. So I doubt we'll actually- For you, Colin, you, you, you're going to love that baby. It's your baby. I know, it's going to be my baby. So- uh... <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's the tough part, right? Can you, can you push it all the way to failure yep. uh, when, you, when you have that emotional connection? Yeah, but pushing to failure is a huge thing in industry, is it not? Like that's like how they do a lot of tests, to test a failure. It, it is, but it's- it's you typically do it in a strategic manner. So, right, the the first aircraft isn't the it doesn't go into complete failure. You build test aircrafts yeah. that you can that specifically for the purpose of you know an overpressure test, flexibility test. You build all those, and and it can you build smaller parts. Yeah. Um, you know, for a perfect example is, and, and again, this goes back to the, the way the industry is set up, but for aircraft, you don't, an aircraft manufacturer doesn't build its own engines. Yeah. And so, you know, GE or Saffron um, uh, or Pratt and Whitney, they've got to test their engines some way. So one, we do it on a test. They do it on a test stand first. B or uh, Blue Origin does it on a test stand. We build engines. We do it on a test stand first. With aircraft, then most of them own another airplane that they can put an additional engine on. Um, GE owns a, I know they own a 47 as a test bed, and it has three of the original engines and one engine that they can swap out 
for whatever they need to test. Yeah. I saw a picture of, it was on Instagram the other day and it was like an aerospace feed and it was a 767, I think. And it has like at the front, a pylon that you can hook turbo props to, but it's like the wonkiest ah. looking thing ever for test beds. Just yeah. Yeah. And test, test beds are amazing thing. Like purely to test something else. Yeah. Uh, very interesting but yeah so you, you're limited on what you can push all the way to the end yeah um, to complete failure yeah, yeah. definitely um, something that we will look to in the future but since we have you today on the podcast one thing Colin and I really wanted to I guess pick your brain with was about uh, your company soapbox rocket um, which I read at was essentially um, as an advisor for um, startups and, um, you know, I think as a design thinking expert uh, with experience, especially in, in systems engineering. Um, take us through that process as if Project Boom was a startup. Um, what business or engineering strategy should we start focusing on? Yeah, that's and that's a good question, and and I would come back at you guys uh, first off, uh, and and push you. What is the objective of the you know? Well, first off, is it a project or is it a company? It's a project, uh, right? And and so that changes the narrative a little bit because now you're not worried about making money. You need to fund it, uh, just like a company. But you also, that also puts a different limitation on you, meaning the people giving you money have to know they're not going to get a refund back. And so to kind of push this maybe too far, design thinking is about being human centered. And so when you're going to your fundraising, it's making that human connection. It's, it would break down the project and who are you going to for funding? and understanding those individuals and explaining what they're going to get out of it, whether it's, you know, you know, one, put your name on it, you know, so it'll say uh, Pepsi across the top, you know, the, the, I forgot what their slogan was about the generation next, I think, but uh, that's right. So they, they could, that'd be one aspect. So, you know, if you're a marketing guy, if you're going to ask money from a marketing guy, He's going to achieve something, but I think more to the point for a program like this, it's about helping the next generation and making sure that those companies that are giving you money understand this isn't just about getting their brand out there, but it's about showing the world and the next generation that they're on the right trail. Um, right. They're, they're supporting the next generation. It's, it's mission driven as opposed to finance driven. And so you guys want to feed into that. Yeah. That's a, that's a cool actually perspective. I think we haven't necessarily looked from because, um, spot looking for sponsorships and donors is kind of the next big step for us. Uh, and it's something we're diving into in the next month. So that's a really cool point of view. Uh, but yeah, that's definitely, I think it's definitely around. something we're thinking about. Yeah. Um, and I know Colin and I have worked on this very extensively in the past few weeks, just on, you know, defining the project boom brand. And I think the original goal was to create a brand that was um, professional, but also speaks to the youth of the team. And I think the core statement was underneath it all, we're all just a bunch of kids trying to do something cool. Right. Uh, so I guess in order to find a solution to that problem with the brand, we have to ask, what could we do to charge students with um, the initiative to believe in their capability of tackling complex engineering problems? Yeah. But I think and, it's a cool thing to use you as an example, Craig, I think for, and we've seen this throughout the project is you don't have to have a formal engineering background to do these kind of things. And like you specifically, obviously like well-educated as a physicist, but um, you had problem-solving skills and you were able to just approach problems open-minded and solve them. And that's really the main thing you need for um, anything within the engineering world specifically. Uh, people on our project, we talked about this multiple times, high schoolers, 
are on our project. They have no engineering background other than basic math and science concepts, but they're open-minded and willing to solve problems. And they're con contributing to the project in amazing ways um, just because they're willing to problem solve. So I think that's super inspiring to me at least. And, and I, I'll say the, the advantage there is the opportunity for unique viewpoints or at least um, open to, to new viewpoints. And that's a difficult part you'll find in, in corporations. It's very hard for a corporation to do something radically different because they've got to protect what they already have. Now, the risk is if you, if you protect your base too long and for too much, somebody's going to leapfrog you. So you do kind of have to cut your own legs out from under you at some point if you want to keep moving forward. But it's still very difficult for a company to say, you know what, we're going to try something that is going to cannibalize our own industry because we need to move forward. So that's a constant barrier, whereas you guys are open to, and, and to the point, not necessarily having all of the background the ability to say why not and dig into why not is a huge thing. I mean, I'm in meetings where the first answer is, well, you can't do that. And, but never asking, wow, we should try that. Or, you know, and, and I've seen this, especially with uh, commercial aviation, the industry is, I don't know what, a hundred years old now. Uh, but, but more to the point, we're looking at a lot of the stuff we look at today is 30 to 40 years old. Things that were tried 30 to 40 years ago failed, not because they weren't possible. The technology just hadn't caught, had, hadn't been there yet. So now companies are able to go back and look and try things again with newer, newer materials, newer processes, you know, all of that but you still get people in the room that'll say, ah, we tried that 30 years ago and it didn't work. Um, you guys don't have that problem yet. Um. Yeah. We, yeah, we don't have, I, I think the cool thing about a young team is you don't have the inherent biases that you create through life and through, especially like within industry and being a professional. So it's like, yeah, I tried this and it didn't work that time. Like we haven't tried anything yet. So we're like, well, maybe right. this will work. So well, I think also me and Colin, in terms of our experience of working on big design projects, like for me, I've worked on a few things over, over the past few years, but we don't really, we're going into this with a viewpoint that's very, like we can do whatever we want because I don't have the experience to say we can't do something. So, and especially as we designed, I guess, through the summer, a lot of what we found was let's take a bunch of different directions and I get over time narrowed down which one works and which one doesn't. Um, and I think that's the biggest part of it because a lot of people who are experienced may come in and automatically know that something is a bad idea. But for us, we're learning that it's a bad idea. Yeah, and that's happened. We've definitely had people come in and be like, why the heck are you even considering that? Uh, but we're like, well, I don't know. It seemed like a good idea. <laughs> and then, um, but that's part of the learning process. and. Uh, it's never a bad thing, even though we considered it, because you don't know what you don't know until you know. Right. And, and, and understanding that, you know, what you don't know changes over time, or, or more to the point, what you do know changes over time. And uh, so it's, it's difficult for older generations to understand that. So you constantly need that new young blood. Yep. And so, you know, to get to the fastest uh, remote control airplane, somebody at some point said, you never can beat this speed. It's too late. And, you know, hopefully next year you guys will beat it and then beat it again and beat it again. And then somebody will hopefully comes along and beats it again uh, because it's that constant slow, not always slow growth, but incremental steps are always required uh, to, to move something forward. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, uh, I think that's one, especially the faster, there's always like people that say, Oh, that's the top. Like you can't break that. And that happens a lot in the athletic world about like yep. 
um, the fastest runner, the fastest mile, the fastest marathon. Um, there's always, they say, oh, this is the physical limit of the human body. And then someone like goes and breaks it. And it's, but you never know until someone does. So that's always super interesting. Um, but I think. Yeah, I guess. Um, so we've defined ourselves as a project who wants to inspire kids to do and tackle complex engineering issues. What is this next step for us? I know we're, we're going into our town hall in the next few days. And for me and Colin, we're sitting here, um, and especially a few hours ago in our meeting, thinking everything's going to change after we launch this project, right? Do you have any advice for us in these next step forward? Yeah, I, I think you, you've got your, you've got a good, I'll say you've got a good mission statement about, I think what you do need to do is the phases have to have measurable objectives well-defined and and even to that point mission statements for those specific projects the the phases because as a whole your mission is to inspire and to fly an rc aircraft faster than the speed of sound but you also want to put that same um i want to say effort but but gravitas onto the projects themselves because as students project is going to live on longer than you guys most likely um, and I think that's part of what your goal is and so you need to be able to have deadlines and objectives that seniors juniors sophomores and freshmen all have an ability to buy in and meet because there's nothing worse than working on a project for two years and then not being there to hit an objective. So if you can have phases yearly, you know, yearly milestones with objectives that people can say, we did it, we hit this objective. And then the next group can come along and keep going forward. That's, that's going to be more valuable to the project in the long run than the top mission is because the mission of your mission precise exactly of inspiring you need to inspire who you've got on your team first before you're you'll be able to inspire outside of your team um and so it's it's monitoring that man that was such a powerful statement yeah. i didn't really think about it but <laughs> we have to inspire the people on our team before inspiring anyone, anyone else. Yeah. Right. I think and, and that's, you know, it, it's, Oh, I can't think of a quote off the top of my head, but there's, there's something about that, right. That, you know, a leader isn't somebody who knows the right path. A leader is somebody that can inspire the crowd to go down the right path. And, and the best way to do that is being inspired yourself. And so if you guys as the leading group, are inspired yourselves, you'll be able to inspire other people to follow. Yeah, and I, I think one, for any students listening, I think in why these student projects are so important is, and kudos to everybody on the project, and I, this is why I think our team is so amazing, is they're not hard to inspire because all of us are super passionate about this topic and about this project and about learning and just pushing ourselves to be better so I think it's different than in like the professional industry where um, it might be someone's nine to five job and some people, some industries and some people like love it, right? And some people are just coming to get a paycheck. So that inspiration can be a lot harder. For us as a volunteer project, people are joining this project because they want to. Um, so it's almost become, it's such an almost non-issue for us. Right, but we also face such a interesting challenge now that everyone's going back to school. That's true. Right. And for me, I know my school or homework is always going to take number one priority. So then the question becomes, how do we keep empowering people to want to take on different engineering bids or take on the next iteration of our aircraft? Yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, it's a, that's the main thing with school. And it's something like our leadership has been talking about constantly is like, how are we going to keep everything going during school? Because one thing we've preached is school comes first for everybody. 
while we think this project has huge importance, um, we want everybody to make sure that their grades come first and foremost. So um, that's one thing. But however, how do we still keep people motivated to stay in the project? Some people, I think it's still, it's, you don't even have to say anything to them. Like they're just like doing things and building things and designing things. So they stay active. But others, you do have to do exactly like you said, Craig, is uh, inspire them and figure out how to inspire them and excite them. And some of that we're doing is by constantly sharing um, our updates, any huge updates administratively. So like if we get contacted from a big company that gets excited about it, like that immediately goes in our group chat. It's like, hey, look who like is excited about what we're doing, what you're doing. And I think that's been a huge thing for helping us um, inspire. One, one challenge, one hurdle you'll face, back to your point of there's some people you don't have to inspire. Working on it, what the challenge is going to be is you're going to get people that are going to disagree with the decisions you make. And either A, they'll drop because they came on to do this and now you guys are changing. But I think more dangerous is something underneath it and uh shiva i'm gonna pick on you since you're marketing is at some point you're gonna get contacted by a, a company well uh, you know let's say in this in this case i'm gonna take ford as an example ford's gonna contact you and you're gonna say wow i love ford they're you know i knew some or i had whatever a ford escort that i loved for some odd reason <laughs> <laughs> and, and I totally want Ford on board and you're going to head down, work on it. What do on board on board on board and at the same time, Chevy might come over and say, Hey, we don't, you don't have to sell us. Here's a check, but you could be so focused on Ford. You forget to stop and look around at what else is going on and you could end up, not on purpose, but on, but end up sabotaging the team. And that's the danger with people that are truly self-motivated is it's very difficult to pull that person back a little bit and say, I get that you're in the zone and, and you're very attached to this, but we have to do this as a project and not as an individual task. Yeah. Uh, I think that's big because a lot of kids on the project – have aspirations of working at X company, right? So let's say, you know, X company comes in and says, hey guys, we wanna give you a, ba a bajillion dollars, you know? Um, and then another company comes by who's maybe a competitor and says something similar. Then I guess for one person, one of those companies is their dream company. Yeah. Yeah, so it's, it's a hard thing. I think one thing, Hopefully we don't have to go that route. Hopefully, um, which I'm not sure. I don't know, Craig, you might have more experience on this is we don't know yet. So um, when we start reaching out to sponsors, I don't know if a sponsor is going to be like X companies be like, yeah, we'll sponsor you, but you can't have Y company sponsor you as well. I don't know if they're going to want the whole thing. Um, and that'll be interesting to see as it goes. Hopefully my like, of course, like optimistic side is like, everybody's just going to see how great the project is for students and not care about competition and just give us money. <laughs> but yeah. I don't think that's going to be the reality. No, no. And, and a good, perfect example uh, of that is, so when I was at Cessna, this would have been, it happened before I was at Cessna and I would have never been involved anyways, but the Sedgwick County Zoo was building a penguin exhibit. Um, and they were looking for funding to help with it. And they had a big plan that was going to be outdoor, indoor, you know, like four different types of penguins. It was going to be amazing. Uh, why flightless birds? They went to aviation companies. I'll never understand. But <laughs> both Cessna and Bombardier were ready to give money. And Bombardier said, whatever, this is how much money we'll give you. And... Cessna said, we'll give you more, but you can't have any other aviation company involved. So now the Sedgwick County Zoo has a much smaller outdoor only penguin exhibit sponsored by Cessna, uh, as opposed to being a you know, multi-company, bigger, better. 
the, the zoo was forced to reduce the scope of their project to make sure that they had enough funding for something. And so you will run into companies that will say, I'm happy to do it, but you can't have whatever competitor also on the airplane. Yeah, and then I feel like I'm in Shark Tank when even thinking about this because <laughs> the whole thing, whenever they ask one of them, they say, hey, they so one of them gives them the deal and the other person's like, okay, I'll give you a deal. But the other person's like, no, like you don't even get to listen to it. So, and because they're scared because you don't want to give up a deal because you don't know what the other one is. And for us, if a company approaches us first, um, and says something, right? Like McDonald's comes to us and like, we're gonna give you money. Um, and they're the first ones coming to us. If they're the first companies to come to us, we're probably gonna be inclined to accept it. But also in the back of my mind is, well, what if Wendy's wants to come over and give us even more? Right. Um, but you don't know until you talk to them, especially as a small, relatively small um, student project. It's like, we don't have the access to talk to everybody at once. Um, we have to kind of wait until they come to us and that's just, However it happens, it happens. So it's going to be a barrier we're going to have to overcome. And we're just going to have to be extremely objective with it. Um, but I think as engineering it. students, having this opportunity to really challenge our abilities in other fields that are not just within aerospace is something that's really cool for our team overall. Yeah. I think in a project like this as well, um, hopefully... Uh, for me, like, obviously, like, in this position, I'm dealing with a lot of management stuff, dealing with companies and sponsorships where I never would, should I just be an engineer on, on some company. Um, however, I hope that since this is a smaller project, um, the students on it that are on the engineering teams get a better insight into what it's like to deal with these companies and go for sponsorships and stuff. Um, but it's, yeah, it's definitely a learning experience um, that you don't get anywhere else unless you're, <laughs> um, but it's, it's worth it a hundred percent and it's challenging. And we've had, it's funny. You've mentioned the thing of like, well, if you make this decision, like I'm going to leave the project. Um, like we had tension among, like, I'm not like the pro it hasn't gone like perfectly smoothly. We've had our arguments like within our leadership, even like someone stood up and said, if this is decision that's being made, I'm not sticking with the project because I'm like, it wasn't like a bitter thing. It was, I'm passionate about this and I don't think that's the right decision. Um, right. And that was one, that was an emotional response that we all had and we were getting emotional because we care about the project. But then after we have a rule now within the project, the 24 hour rule of after we talk about something, we say, let's talk tomorrow. And then we all think about it. And like almost every time tomorrow is a completely different conversation because we've all had the time to sit back and be like, okay, breathe. <laughs> what is a more objective, correct decision to make. But um, it's been a huge learning experience that that is learning how to deal with each other, all of us, and deal with each other's emotions and passions about the project, um, but still be able to make the correct, objectively right decision um, from all the data that we have given to us at that time. Right. Um, yeah, as we deal with all these um, different, not problems, but different situations over time. I think we're learning a lot. But Craig, I wanted to ask you, there are a few things on my mind that I want to ask you. Um, and as an engineer at Blue Origin, what are some of the conversations that you guys have over there? Like, tell me something cool. <laughs> yeah, let's just hear about Blue Origin. Uh, yeah. What, what, Without um, getting you in trouble, of course. Yeah, no. Uh, I mean, everybody is excited for uh you know the the lander uh yep. for going back to the moon in 2024 um there's a lot of conversations around will it happen uh technologically it absolutely it can happen uh the the only thing slowing that down is the government uh shocking and hey right yeah amazing isn't it um in general, uh, you know, for for us, other than you know what we're what we're all working on, and um, I think Blue Origin's a great company. I'm I'm proud to be here at Blue Origin because everybody is kind of working towards that same mission. So Blue's mission is millions of people living and working in space, and and figuring out how to get it there. And I think 
that is a bigger objective than you know a lot of other companies can can say or at least will publicly say and the fact that we're all passionate about that makes for some great conversations and also the fact that blue origin is making all of our products human rated first uh, it adds a lot of additional challenges at the front end but it also keeps us focused on that objective so it's again our top mission is mil millions of people living and working in space but new shepherd is about putting individuals into space uh you know for a short amount of time not living and working but having a good time in space and so our smaller missions are still attached to that bigger mission of how do we build a you know a rocket that's reusable that's human rated and reusable and then bringing those lessons into new glenn and even though the initial missions for new glenn i don't believe will be human uh, missions i think they're satellites still at this point we're building that rocket human rated so that that's when we're cool. ready we don't have to re we don't have to recert we're already there right when is, I think when is the launch Colin date? and I, uh, uh, I there isn't one okay. uh, there's not one publicly yeah i know one thing colin and i talked about uh, a few weeks ago was um how does the be5 or the be4 engine match up to the raptor engine you know comparing blue origin and spacex and um we that's love having the, those conversations it's always, that's funny it's always the conversation it's i what i love about the uh modern space industry is the ability of companies like blue origin and spacex and then all these and then all these different startups right is their ability to um, inspire kids and the fact that like we talk about it like sports almost and it's like a competition it gets people excited about it um and that's what i love about the space industry because i think after the space race and after the moon landings that kind of died down it was just kind of like 30 years of like dullness of like yeah we we're launching rockets and stuff but nobody was like super passionate about it um, and yeah. then the, I think the private space industry, um, with these companies has reignited that passion. It's super exciting. And, and it's amazing for me to see how many launch providers there are today, or, or we'll call them potential launch providers. Yeah. Um, clearly the industry will focus down eventually, but I mean, even on the low end, when you, you've got, um, space labs with electron, yep. you've got Astra with, um, I don't know what they call their rocket up in Alaska. Yeah. Um, Relativity, they're 3D printing a rocket. I think there's also um, uh, there's and there's and I was gonna say there's I can't get a name. I totally drew a blank on the name. But oddly enough, in in Las Cruces, New Mexico, is a company building water launch uh, right. rockets. And I've also heard there's ABL Space Systems, who's yeah. working on. Uh, their own launches as well. Have you ever? Hey, have yeah. you? And, sorry, continue. Uh, I was gonna say. Then you've got. Then you go outside. You've got Mitsubishi uh, in Japan. You've got Long March in China. You've got um, Roscos, Romscos, whatever you say. Uh, the Cosmos. Yeah, you've yeah, got you've got them. They're they're looking at bringing back uh, their shuttle competitor. Um, but you're on. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah, no they're looking at bringing that back. So, it, it, you know, it's not just, and then India. India's got their own uh, mission to bring them uh, in space. So it's, it's interesting that it's not just commercial. The, the whole national space races are going strong as well. Yeah, it's so exciting. It's like, it's like finally, again, we're back at it because, like I said, it felt like for, I say felt like I read the history books and it seemed like, <laughs> um, <laughs> like it, it was slowed down for a while, but now to see, but yeah, like the space industry is just taking off. I think it's the privatization of that. Um, it's competitiveness, uh, companies realizing that this can actually be done. It's so exciting. Right. So Craig, tell me, was there any moment, I guess, working at blue origin where you kind of were like, wow, I'm working at Blue Origin. <laughs> um, well, so oddly, uh, I started during uh, COVID. 
Um, so that changes it a little bit because we're still primarily working remotely uh, for, and the objective for working remotely is we do have people building spaceships and we want them to be safe. So those of us that don't need to be there, we're staying away to try and keep the individuals that do need to be there safe and, and been doing a good job. But I think uh, on my first day, so I work in the O'Neill building and which is their, their new building. So my first day I went in, did orientation and then they, you know, go see my desk. And when you first walk into the O'Neill, O'Neill building, blue moon is there. Oh. And the, uh, you kind of don't realize how big it is, uh, from pictures. It's, it's a big chunk of equipment. Uh, and the fact that that's there and New Shepherd is there uh, next to it, uh, that was kind of the moment, like, awesome. <laughs> yeah, because those these are all the moments, like, yeah, what you're talking about is that's what all of us young engineers are, like, striving for. Like, we just dream of those moments of, like, walking in the doors. Like, right. It's like, like a year from now, Colin, when we have this thing built and we're ready to yep. fly it. Yeah. Yeah. It's all, it's which I think is a cool perspective of this podcast and be able to talk for, to professionals like you is we get a little hit of what that's like and the perspective of what it's like to continue to drive us to um, push towards that goal of walking in the doors as an employee at one of these companies. Yeah. All right. And, and there's a couple of companies working on uh, supersonic aircraft. So boom, supersonic, Ariane yeah. supersonic, Hermes, uh, exosonic, Virgin Galactic now. Yep, Virgin Galactic. Oh, I did not see that. Yep. Yeah. So they're going and and this I think is it's what Rolls Royce who's making an engine for them. Yeah, Rolls Royce is going to make the engine. And this was my this was always my argument for Virgin Galactic was why for me that they were an interesting company to look at was that I always said their ultimate goal was travel in the on the planet because it's realistically you're talking three hours from one point on the planet to any other point on the planet when you include their launch system and so you had new mexico which can feed la uh australia was wide open for launch locations the north sea they're building up for london and europe and so realistically they would have had, had to find somewhere in the northeast of the u.s but you could have you could have, like, if you were in LA, you could have gotten on a flight, flown to New Mexico, um, you know, 45 minute flight to Las Cruces, get on space, get onto their flight. They'll take you up, launch suborbital flight to Australia, and then a 45 minute flight to Sydney. And you're talking total round trip, four hours to LA to Sydney. Um, <laughs> I always like thought that 22. that was, and I always thought that that was Branson's objective. Now they're gonna. They're saying, okay, maybe the launch system isn't the best method. We'll build a supersonic aircraft, but it's still the same same flight profile. You still, you just, they're still gonna go. I think personally, I think they're gonna go pretty damn close to the Carmen line. And and who defines the Carmen line de determines whether or not they enter space. <laughs> or not. Yeah. Um, right. I think seeing these companies and also working on Project Boom. We're all, we're all just out here trying to build a dream, right? Yeah. Um, Craig, as we wrap up the show today, I want to just thank you so much for being on. And I guess also being brave enough to advise us along this journey. I know saying that we're going to build a supersonic UAV is kind of unthinkable, but um, it's really awesome to have you on. Where can the audience find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, I think the best bet is just go. I still have my uh, soapboxrocket.com domain um I, I, I need to figure out something to do with it but that'll link pretty much if anyone wants to get a hold of me awesome. uh that'll be so you know careers change life's change so but domain names you you should hold on to forever <laughs> all right in terms of project boom we have a lot of things coming up for us in the next few days uh please be sure to check us out on linkedin and register or sign up for our town hall so you can be in on the action when that happens on Wednesday. And if you're listening to this after Wednesday, hopefully you've watched this 
on YouTube. Um, also, we're launching our new website very soon, so please check us out at www.theprojectboom.org. This episode of the podcast has been super exciting. I've been Shiva Valbanani here with Colin Watson, and this is us signing off.